Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. Too often neglected and misunderstood by British political commentators, Northern Ireland has been thrust into the spotlight in recent years by the intense wrangling over post-Brexit trading arrangements. Just this week, the government's bill to change the Northern Ireland Protocol passed its second reading in the House of Commons, much to the chagrin of those who accused Boris Johnson of trampling over international law. For this week's episode of the CapEx podcast, we decided to get the inside track from one of the province's most astute unionist commentators, Owen Polly. Owen is a weekly columnist with the Belfast Newsletter and a regular contributor to CapEx on all things Northern Irish. He's also the author of a pamphlet entitled An Agenda for Northern Ireland After Brexit. I began by asking Owen how the government's proposed changes to the protocol have gone down on both sides of the divide. So, Owen, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the CapEx podcast. It's great to have an authentic voice from Northern Ireland because we have a lot of commentary about Northern Ireland from commentators on this side of the Irish Sea who don't necessarily always know exactly what they're talking about. I mean, obviously, the big issue at the moment, among many issues, is the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, I mean, where where are we now? The government has published a bill. Uh, has So the second reading of a bill has gone through the House of Commons to adjust the Northern Ireland Protocol. I mean, how has that, that gone down in Northern Ireland um, among unionists, but also among Republicans? Well, uh, thank you for having me, John, uh, first of all. But uh, what I would say about, about the bill that's currently going through the House of Commons, certainly from the unionist perspective, it is progress and it's welcomed by most people on the pro-union side. Uh, but they do realise that there's a long way to go with it. I mean, some Tory MPs have been quite critical of it. They've been uh, muted in their criticism so far, and uh, they didn't actually vote against the bill on, on Monday. But there were some quite uh, robust contributions to the debate speaking against it. And I think in, in particular of uh, Theresa May, uh, quite ironically, because she was the person who first agreed to uh, have an Irish sea border. There are going to be multiple amendments to the bill. There's going to be resistance in the House of Lords, albeit that that may be overcome by uh, invoking the, the, the Parliament Act or whatever. Uh, but also many of the bill's powers are actually at the discretion of ministers, even if it does pass into law. Now, there are different 
kind of views, depending on how hardline unionists are as to whether that's a difficulty or not, whether that makes it unacceptable. From my perspective, I think the bill is significant because what it does do is it removes the assumption that goods that are moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland under the protocol, under the protocol, uh, if goods are moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland at all, there's an assumption that they must be at risk of moving on into the European Union. And that's where many of the problems with uh, trade barriers and so on have, have come in, uh, into the equation. But this bill actually does remove that assumption. Now, as you would imagine, Republicans, nationalists, they aren't so keen because as they see it, one of the advantages of the protocol was that it moved us towards an, an all-Ireland economy, that it kind of moved Northern Ireland into the EU's orbit and into Dublin's orbit, essentially. And they're quite protective of that uh, of that gain that they believe that they made. Mm -hmm. just, I mean, just to take a step back there, I mean, how solid are the kind of blocks of opinion there? We talk about it in quite sort of often quite crude terms i feel that we say like oh there's the loyalists and there are republicans and they have catholics and protestants and that's basically it i mean is, there must there are lots of sort of shades of opinion within within and between those communities surely yes there are shades of opinion um although what i would say is that there isn't a single unionist mla in, in stormont who is actually um you know pro the protocol that there are very few unionists who would feel that the protocol is a good thing but that's not to say that some unionists wouldn't accept uh, a reform of the protocol rather than its ditching uh, in its entirety um, and again nationalist opinion is fairly solidly uh, for the protocol but yes there are meant there, there are people who would uh, like to be pragmatic and and, and perhaps negotiate and, and perhaps uh, find some sort of common ground and there are people who are very adamant on either side that uh, either the protocol must go in its entirety or that it must be implemented rigorously, which was this kind of uh, form of words that that uh, some nationalist MLAs and, and, and actually the Alliance Party, which is very uh, pro-EU rather than nationalist per se, uh, they came up with this kind of uh, form of words and letter uh, asking the, the British government to rigorously implement the protocol. But that kind of demand that there have there have been movements over the course of this process because the idea that the protocol should be rigorously implemented that there should not be grace periods and that kind of thing i mean that's a very marginal view now i mean we get into a debate you mentioned it before we're talking about green lanes and red lanes for goods and and so on and you've described this bill that we have this week as as progress of a sort but to what extent do you see these tweaks that we're talking about assuaging what you might call that kind of hardcore of unionist sentiment that thinks the protocol is just fundamentally unacceptable? I think that if, uh, if people see progress, I think there will be a kind of a change in opinion because, I mean, what people primarily want, they want the practical problems to go away. And the constitutional problems are very much to the fore of, of unionists kind of critique of what's wrong with the protocol. Um, but actually this bill goes some way toward addressing those because you're looking at things like uh, dual regulation, i.e. that goods that are coming into the Northern Ireland market or, or goods that are 
staying in the Northern Ireland market, as it were, can either abide by EU regulations or by British regulations. And that's kind of a, a major move constitutionally. And also the fact that, you know, the British government is going to assert its right to set tax, uh, the, the tax regime and, and uh, the subsidy regime without interference from the EU. That Again, that's something very significant. So it pretty much depends how much of this bill survives the kind of parliamentary process, whether we're talking about something that's been heavily amended, whether we're talking about something that's been negotiated backwards into something that isn't actually recognisable from the first draft, maybe then you will get a, a, a section of, of unionism um, that won't accommodate itself to that. I think, uh, you know, our, our perhaps our most hardline unionist party here, or our most uncompromising uh, unionist party, is called the traditional unionist voice. Now it only has one MLA at Stormont, but it performed very, very well. This is in, Jim Allister's party. It, it, this is Jim Allister. Yeah. And his critique is that if you accept green and red lanes, you're accepting that there is a customs border and therefore that's not acceptable um, and everything else. But, um, you know, that there's also a section of loyalism that, seems to be happy with this, funnily enough, that was going along with Jim Allister up until this point. So, I mean, that there, there are many, many shades of opinion and it just depends how this would be implemented and how it would be um, uh, received by, by, by different uh, shades of unionist opinion, certainly. And a lot of the commentary around this seems to neglect a fairly important fact, which is that since leaving the EU or since what, 2020, we haven't actually had the Northern Ireland Protocol implemented, have we? We've had a series of kind of uh, derogations. Um, so we don't really know what that world would actually look like, do we? Well, that's a very important point. And quite often you hear polls thrown about and the idea that people are, uh, people in Northern Ireland are actually supportive of the protocol, but that does ignore the fact that the protocol hasn't yet been implemented properly and there are grace periods for groceries. Um, there are grace periods uh, for parcels, which is a very significant thing. And actually, uh, the European Union is very adamant that, uh, you know, it, it's maybe prepared to make uh, concessions in other areas, but it's very adamant that parcels should be checked and, and should have customs uh, forms uh, filled in and all that kind of thing. So, you know, if people began to see those parts of the protocol that, that, that really are problematic to consumers implemented, I think there would be a very quick change of opinion. And I mean, what you're really seeing in the polls is that people are prepared to accept some kind of protocol so long as all those derogations are um, put in place. But it was the British government unilaterally who put those derogations in place and actually the EU says that they're illegal. So, you know, we're, we're talking about um, international law and people being very adamant that you can't breach international law, but they're not saying that you can't breach the law in the way that's happening at the moment, because that's what's making the protocol livable for people in Northern Ireland and companies in Northern Ireland. I want to just delve into sort of sentiment among um, the Northern Irish public about the way that both sides have conducted themselves, really. Do you think it's a sort of, there's equal anger among, particularly among unionists towards the UK for in, for coming up with a deal that splits the country like this, or is it directed more towards the EU for for 
uh, adopting quite an intransigent position about um, you know goods going into the um, into the single market. I mean, how do, how does that sort of shake up, and how has it changed since the referendum? You know what? Um, this is this is this is something that actually operates on a UK wide level. Really, people have dug themselves into tri into tribes since the referendum, and that largely dictates how they see this. Um, if you were a Remainer, if you were a Unionist Remainer, probably your critique is that it's Boris Johnson's fault, that it's uh, a terrible, um, you know, lack of uh, lack of foresight and, and lack of integrity from him. Um, if you're a Unionist Lever, very often uh, you're pointing more to Hillary, Hillary Benn and, and um, the, the kind of machinations in Parliament before Brexit actually happened and saying that that was the reason that the government had to press ahead with this. And, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the same to a lesser extent is true in the nationalist side, but there, um, there's very much a, a, a kind of sentiment that, that this was not something that Britain had a right to do, that this has been thrust upon them and that Northern Ireland um, didn't want it. So it very much depends on where you stand or where you stood actually on Brexit in the first instance, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, it's absolutely right in terms of the way there's some very interesting academic work about the way these new tribes have have formed since 2016. Just coming back to we've mentioned sort of the unionist reaction to the changes the government is mooting to the protocol. But do you think that there is a version, um, you know, a version of this arrangement, what we'd like to call a landing zone that will actually satisfy all sides it feels like a kind of almost an impossible puzzle to put all the pieces together to satisfy the eu the unionist community the republican community and the british government all at once it's very difficult because i feel certainly that most of this bill's provisions are basically the minimum that was needed to repair the union um the idea that you remove barriers for goods moving from great britain to northern ireland uh, that you allow UK rules to govern domestic Northern Ireland products or the Northern Ireland market rather, and that uh, the government asserts its right to deal with the tax and, and subsidy regimes in Northern Ireland. The only area really where I can see that perhaps there's room for fudge is uh, with the role of, of um, the ECJ. And perhaps there there may be some way of, of, of having it involved in the arbitration or, or even having it as the ultimate arbiter without um, offending the kind of constitutional principles, but that would need to be very carefully tested to ensure that Northern Ireland really is going to be able to go along with Great Britain in the future rather than um, the ECJ sort of stepping in and, and saying this needs to happen, that needs to happen, you can't do this, you can do that. Um, and that's going to be where unionist parties certainly are going to be sort of scrutinising the legislation and the passage of the legislation very carefully. But the other elements of it that sort of um, allow Great Britain to Northern Ireland trade without any impediment and on the same basis as you would get trade from Scotland to England or Wales to England or whatever else, I'm, I'm not sure that there can be a great deal of compromise in that from the unionist side anyway, because really... The government's bill is an assertion of you know, common sense or pragmatism, if, if you want. It, it, it draws on the paper that uh, Lord Frost uh, and, and Brandon Lewis published last summer. It was a, the command paper, as it was known, 
and it really was intended to kind of draw the protocol back to its declared um, purpose, which was to apply to the goods that were genuinely at risk of entering the European Union, not just in theory at risk of entering the European Union and on, on very unlikely circumstances. Because, you know, from the EU's perspective, um, a, a little old lady going from her home in Dundalk and buying a ready meal in, in Newry, which is just across the border in Northern Ireland, is some sort of grave risk to the European Union. And, you know, no, nobody believes that or accepts that or thinks that it's reasonable, but because some people might sort of accept the kind of legalistic viewpoint of the EU, um, it, it's produced a, as this kind of uh, uh, barrier that it isn't possible to get around. And I think, you know, that what, what the bill does is actually show up the absurdity of that uh, kind of thinking. One of the things we've talked a lot about the protocol in the EU, but I think this all takes the attention off Northern Ireland's domestic politics. I mean, how how does this feed into what's going on at Stormont right now? How I mean, how functional is Northern Ireland's actual devolved government? Well, it's not functioning. Is is the short answer to that, John? Um, the, it, well, really how likely is, the, is it to be functional then in, in the near future, do you think? Well, certainly at the moment, the, the, the DUP is very adamant that it's not going to go back into government unless it actually sees progress with the Brit bill and concrete progress, i.e. it's getting close to being put into law. And that's something that we're not likely to see until the autumn time. But then again, you know, the Stormont Assembly would be looking at a summer recess now anyway and coming back in September. So I suppose if by September you're looking at the realistic possibility of the bill coming into law and coming into law fairly quickly, then you may be looking at uh, at, at Stormont getting back to work. Um, but I mean, I, I suppose I, I'm a bit of a cynic in this respect and I wonder uh, whether the Assembly, whether the executive is actually functioning all that well anyway and what difference it would make to um, things on the ground in Northern Ireland, because I mean, you hear a lot of arguments about the cost of living and all this kind of thing, as if the executive would magically step in and make that all better or do something that would alleviate um, people's uh, suffering with the cost of living. And I just don't see it, to be perfectly honest. That was going to be my next question. In fact, it's, are there specific economic and social issues? Or what are the specific economic and social issues in Northern Ireland that you think the biggest priorities when that, when Stormont, magic wand notwithstanding, when Stormont does get back, you know, what are the kind of, what are the biggest issues oh, uh, for you? Uh, I mean, I, not to sound too cynical, but I think the people of Northern Ireland had a kind of a contract with their politicians that, uh, you know, they would get on with whatever it was they were doing up there and we would get on with the rest of their, our lives and the whole sort of uh, process was supposed to keep things stable and peaceful and whatever else, but we have enormous problems um, with our public sector that has basically remained unreformed since 1998 um, and, and so when, when devolution was introduced. We've had seven um, major reviews of the health service, none of which have been implemented. Um, we have a massive number of empty desks in schools simply because the Department of Education, it kind of it may take on work and look at how you might consolidate the school estate and everything else, but it never carries through those reports because that might mean doing something that would be immediately 
unpopular among the public because if you're shutting schools or if you're stopping services in hospitals and making um, and making other hospitals um, centers of excellence and whatever else, all of this has, has a kind of a local uh, aspect and, and will be unpopular with some people. And what happens in Northern Ireland, because ultimately devolved government isn't a responsible government. It's, it's not where the blame ultimately lies. Um, so, you know, they just don't do these things at all. And that's a, a problem across our society and, and, and across particularly the public sector, which is still massively dominant in Northern Ireland, which is still massively unproductive. Um, I was on a BBC programme the other day and I was looking at some figures and I think we, we uh, I think one of them was that there's 17.3 million each year being spent on um, empty workstations in the public sector in Northern Ireland or the civil service in Northern Ireland. And you know, that kind of, that, that's not just a one-off story. It, it, it's, it's something that you see across the board. Um, we've had a, a massive uh, kind of road project in Belfast to try and remove one of the biggest snarl-ups in, in traffic in Northern Ireland. And that's been on the, the long finger since about 2005, you know, and, and you could go on and on and on and on. Um, there's log jam in basically every important issue. And, and it's something that um, is not going to be remedied just by getting uh, the executive back up and running because it will just happen again. They, they like to make popular announcements of spending here and there, but they don't like to actually do the hard, responsible work that they're paid to do. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, I think that the problems you describe, I think, they, they aren't part and parcel of kind of national press coverage in the way that, say, problems in the English Health Service Oh, I just wonder what you think, um, you know, from Belfast, looking at how the media covers Northern Ireland, what do you think the biggest misconceptions or myths are about the province among kind of, I don't know, Westminster or national journalists who don't know, for whom it's not necessarily their patch? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I suppose one of the things that I've noticed, and it's maybe not even unique to Northern Ireland, it may be in common with, with Scotland, but there's a tendency, particularly among uh, people who see themselves as progressive or liberal or whatever, to kind of sympathize or identify with politicians and parties that actually want to 
destroy the UK and there's kind of a naivety about their their motives and you see that with sort of sympathy towards uh, Nicola Sturgeon and some of the um, reaction to the protocol as well and the fact that uh, you know nationalists and, and the Irish government have strongly supported it you see it even on the on the Tory benches and you know I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to name names, but people like uh, Simon Hoare, the chair of the, the, the Northern Ireland Committee, and Julian Smith, who was the, the Northern Ireland uh, secretary um, previously. Um, Theresa May, whenever we were going through the protocol saga, she basically immediately committed to have no border infrastructure between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland, and we've been paying for that uh, sort of brazen decision ever since, because what the message really should have been was that we absolutely don't want any infrastructure, but it is possible if you don't um, act reasonably towards us. So uh, that, that's, that's one of the kind of dynamics that, that certainly I would, I would notice. And similarly, um, I think people kind of underestimate the sort of brooding antipathy that there is towards Britain and, and England in particular and the Republic of Ireland and the fact that um, politicians there for many decades have always found it an easy get out to sort of blame the, the, the former uh, coloniser or whatever for all the problems that they still um, uh, experience as well as the problems that they've had in the past. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it's quite fashionable among a certain type of mainly English person to just sort of unthinkingly take the Irish government side and people like Simon Coveney and um, Leo Varadka before were very good at kind of sassy tweets and things that kind of played to that. It also strikes me, obviously, we had a lot of this when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, that it was it was a uh, an article of faith almost on the far left that, um, that you supported a united Ireland because of that anti-imperialist shtick that they have. And you wrote a piece for us not long ago um, delving into whether or not um, you know the feasibility of a United Ireland. I mean, how how popular a proposition is that actually on both sides of the border? Because I think one of the interesting things is that if you ask people in the Republic, if do they want to take on Northern Ireland with potential fiscal implications, they might give you a different answer to what you might expect. Yes, ab absolutely. Well, it's it, it's a case of. Um... Oh Lord, let us be united, but not yet. I mean, I, in poll after poll, um, people in the Republic, they express their sympathy for um, the Republic uh, absorbing Northern Ireland and, and the All-Ireland state, but they make quite clear that they're not prepared to pay for it, not at all. Um, and we know from uh, academic research that their incomes would take uh, a, a hit of, you know, up to about 11%. So um, it's not a popular notion. It's not a popular notion, particularly in Northern Ireland. And even the most optimistic polls um, would, would uh, record about 30% uh, at the very maximum um, support for, for uh, an all-Ireland state. And... Um, 83%, I think, of people in the, in the latest uh, uh, Life and Time survey, which is one of the biggest, most significant polls in Northern Ireland, said that they probably or definitely felt a sense of belonging to Northern Ireland. So that gives a, sense, a, a very great sense of buy-in to somewhere that has been 
um, a, a place where our constitutional status has been fought over and actually a, a, has caused violence. So I think any society would be quite pleased by that level of buy-in, but in Northern Ireland, it's really quite extraordinary. Now, how much has that sort of sentiment changed since the Belfast Agreement in 98? I mean, one of the, the progenitors of that um, of that deal, you know, the aim was basically to make it, among other things, to make it comfortable to be Northern Irish and a Catholic and feel Irish while still being part of Northern Ireland. I mean, do you think it has succeeded in that respect? I mean, what are your what are your thoughts of what are we twenty four years on now as to how Northern Ireland has changed since the Good Friday Agreement? Whether um, that has been largely for the better, has it been sort of overhyped? I mean, what do, what's your take on that? I, it's a rather broad question. Sorry, <laughs> it, it, it is a, it is a broad question. Um, I think that largely things have moved in the right direction, and certainly Northern Ireland's more prosperous. Um, ordinary life prevails, the, the threat of violence is sort of largely theoretical, and there is this buy-in, as I say, to this uh, Northern Irish identity, to the idea of Northern Ireland as an entity, um, which at one point caused a great deal of hostility, particularly from nationalists, the nationalists would have saw that as an anathema, and um, there is much more of a tendency to buy into this. Um, I think from a unionist perspective, um, if I'm articulating a unionist uh, perspective then the idea that um, the rise of a northern Irish, of a northern Irish identity of Northern Ireland would very much be to the benefit of the union and very much to the benefit of unionism was always kind of an unspoken um, belief among unionists and what we've seen is that although there is perhaps less enthusiasm, um, for an all-Ireland state, there's perhaps less urgency to the idea that Northern Ireland should be absorbed by the Republic of Ireland. By the same token, there's perhaps less um, of an allegiance to the United Kingdom, in a way. Um, that's taken as, as a kind of a nominal thing. And, and there's the rise of this set of people who describe themselves as other, who you know say that they're... Um, not committed to, to one side of the constitutional debate um, or the other. And there's also, you know, a, a greater um, amount of comfort with Northern Ireland being a place apart. And that's something that I find a little difficult myself. And, and I think that that's regrettable because um, my sort of political outlook has always been that I want to see Northern Ireland included as much as possible in the rest, uh, in, in national conversations and national politics, in the national culture and integrated um, as much as possible as well. So um, there are positives and negatives uh, from a union's perspective. But I mean, the, the other thing is that while um, the, this level of progress has been made at the same time, old attitudes and assumptions have hardened and you see a, a very great sort of tendency among young people in particular to sort of assume that the, the IRA's campaign, for example, was in some way justified, whereas during the Troubles, there would have been um, an absolute uh, consensus right across society that what, they, that, that what they were doing was wrong and immoral. And um, that sort of, uh, that, that uh, consensus has, has, has gone as well. And I suppose that's inevitable as well because we're further away from 
from the violence. So it, it, there have been positive developments thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, but um, that, that there have also been elements of the past that haven't been settled and, and, and dealt with. Yeah, I mean, that, that sort of takes me quite neatly to um, my final question, which is about kind of amnesties for, um, well, murderers, basically, from the Troubles era uh, on both sides, but obviously it touches a lot of former um, IRA members, UVF as well, of course. Um, but I mean, how is that a is that a big potent issue in Northern Irish politics across the board, or does it tend to focus on the, the families of the victims? Is it something that most people have an opinion on? And if so, are the, is there a body of opinion that's like, okay, look, we've got to move forward, even if that means some people escaping justice? or continuing to escape justice, because there are people who committed crimes 30, 40 years ago who still haven't been prosecuted. It's still hugely sensitive, and understandably, a lot of people don't want to give up their chance to see some sort of justice done, but there's, to a degree, a sort of a generational divide on it. Um, People who remember the troubles are much more engaged in the debates about the past than um, younger people and very often they're the ones who say that we have to to move on and and everything else but I I suppose the difficulty that we've got and the reason that the the government is actually trying to legislate in this is at the moment we do have a de facto amnesty for IRA killers I mean they they, they just isn't um, any prospect of of most IRA murders being taken to court or, or getting as far as court and there's also a need to stop the law being used to sort of pursue the conflict by other means to kind of rewrite the history of the the troubles or I suppose more accurately to distort the history of the troubles because history is rewritten all the time but when history is distorted that's where um uh, that's where where problems arise and I suppose if I had some reservations about uh, the kind of package of measures that the government's talking about. I worry that the sort of truth recovery or academic side of it will be used to distort the history of the troubles because academics are already engaged in that. We have a huge industry in Northern Ireland of talking about transitional justice, um, which is basically shorthand for blaming the state. It's something that uh, operates in places like South Africa, where the state was by far the biggest uh, perpetrator of violence. It's not suitable for Northern Ireland, but it's a system that um, focuses on incidents involving the state to the exclusion of others. And that's uh, that there's an academic trend um, and and quite an ideological um, trend to to focus on that. So if we do move ahead with this legislation, um, not only do you have to think about the, the feelings of families who have been bereaved and, and, and victims of the troubles and victims who, who now are being denied their uh, chance to, to achieve any kind of justice, but you also have to think about the way that the, the bodies that we're creating will be uh, used either through the legal system or through this kind of academic idea of truth recovery or um, examining the past or whatever else. I did say that was going to be my final question, but I do have one small follow-up. You mentioned there that there was a generational divide. I just wonder, is it something that kind of gives you a bit of hope uh, 
for the future that younger people in Northern Ireland perhaps don't have the same attitudes, perhaps uh, do not have the same sectarian strength of sectarian feeling as older people who remember the awful things that happened in the past? Uh, or am I being misty eyed and <laughs> motherhood and apple pie about that? I suppose you could look at it like that. And there are instances where that probably is accurate. But again, as I've, as I've sort of pointed out, there's also this tendency to look back at the troubles with not nostalgia, but to kind of glamorize them. And um, you do see that actually, I mean, this isn't just from the, the, uh, from the perspective of, of a unionist commentator. I mean, this is something that happens more in the nationalist um, side of defense because there is this idea of a, of a uh, you know, war of, of uh, to, to free people and, and a, war a war against- A war of liberation uh, or whatever, yeah. Yeah, a, a war of liberation uh, and a war against an oppressive state and all this kind of thing, which is much, which lends itself much more to be glamorized and uh, sort of uh, ignores the actual reality of what was going on. And there is, you know, a whole culture now of, of young people shouting up the rah and, and recording messages and TikTok and all this kind of thing. So while um, we have made progress and while there's a section in the middle of society who are much more comfortable living together and, and, and working together and moving on from that, we do still have structural aspects of sectarianism built into our society. And in some ways, it, it's quite striking how little progress we've made in terms of breaking those down. And again, you know, our, our children tend to go to different schools and maybe play different sports. And there are, you know, uh, an array of different um, uh, kind of structures that, that haven't been broken down in, in that way. All right. Well, and um, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the CapEx podcast. I think it's been an extremely illuminating conversation. Uh, Owen writes very regularly for us, so please do keep an eye out for his pieces um, and also for his regular column in, I think it's the Belfast News, is that correct? Belfast Newsletter, John. Belfast yeah. Newsletter. Yeah. Uh, every, every Monday you can uh, catch the freshest opinion in the Belfast Newsletter. Always, we're always happy to plug uh, semi-rival publications here. Uh, thanks very much and uh, I'll see you soon. Okay. Thank you.